And welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number 145, recorded on December 3rd, 2019. Here are some of our topics for today. It's Picnic's Mega Round, uh, What the Hell is October, the Apostrophe Protection Society, Toothbrushes, and much more. We will also run a conversation with Rafael Meyer, uh, the CEO and co-founder at Lancet. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is life? Hi, Andrew. It's going well. How are you? Yeah, all is well here as well. A bit cold-ish. Uh, how is it for you now? It should be colder than here, I suppose. Yeah, winter is in full spring here. Uh, full spring, winter. Um, here in Scotland, <laughs> it is very cold. We've had a lot of frost, quite wintry mix out there, but... Very par for the course for this part of the world. Right. But I have to say, I'm really uh, sort of happy because uh, my story for this week is uh, finally one where I was able to use my sort of local knowledge that is a little bit of the Dutch language that I speak. And I'm going to talk about like a local story. So at least I was able to kind of bring uh, the place where I live to help me to uh, do a good segment for the podcast. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> cool. But before we dive in today, and we have got a lot to talk about, I promise, uh, here is also a quick housekeeping announcement from us. So this is probably the last week that you will get our podcast on a Wednesday. You know, we, we have thought about it and decided that it would probably make much more sense if we share our thoughts about the weeks that passed at the beginning of the new week. That is on Monday. So from next week, watch your favorite podcast app on Mondays to see our new episodes coming up. I do hope that you like this change. Please let us know your thoughts in any way that is convenient for you. Now, on to the story. And as I said, I got a local one today. That's the one about a startup that was founded here in the Netherlands and uh, is mostly active here as well. And if you followed our news coverage uh, last week, you've probably guessed already that I'm talking about Picnic. And that's an online supermarket uh, founded in 2015. And last week, Picnic raised 200 million euros in funding and an additional 50 million euros in a loan from the Dutch bank ABN AMRO. Uh, this raise comes two years after Picnic closed its first funding round of 100 million euros. So the total right now is 350 million euros. The company did not disclose the valuation that it's raised the money at, but I do think that this should be a unicorn by now. It's okay also if you have not heard much about Picnic before because the startup has only been active in some parts of the Netherlands and a few cities in Germany so far. It is, however, very highly regarded in the local ecosystem and I'm sure that the new funding will reinforce uh, that further. The idea of Picnic is very simple. It's an online supermarket. It's basically a company that delivers your groceries that it picks in its own warehouses. It doesn't have any customer-facing retail facilities offline. So you could probably call it a dark supermarket of sorts or something like that. 
Picnic's advantages over the other supermarket chains are supposedly lower prices uh, that I didn't check and uh, free delivery. And I remember that when I was living in the UK, I wonder if it's still the case, Natalie, but back then I could get my groceries from local supermarkets delivered for maybe like a euro or two euros, uh, especially if I was willing to uh, do it uh, in the midday, like non-popular time slots and stuff. But in the Netherlands, it's certainly not the case. Is it still the same in, in the UK, Natalie? Can you get delivery? Yes, there's actually a lot of different supermarket delivery options from local local providers. I've never used any of them, but they're not that expensive, either for click and collect or delivery. Right. So in the Netherlands, it's a bit different, though. So I, I, I never I never do that here because it's a bit uh, more expensive. I guess it's a bit less convenient. And this is what has made uh, Picnic quite popular uh, locally. So right now, the company says that it has 300,000 clients and uh, 300 million euros in revenues. It is not profitable and it will not be profitable in the foreseeable future. Uh, the co-founder, Michiel Miller, said in a recent interview that the company is more after rapid growth than profitability, which I guess kind of makes sense in this case. So what does Picnic actually need all this money for? A startup has as startups usually do, a grand plan to build a huge new distribution center of 42,000 square meters near Utrecht. Uh, The vision is to introduce as much automation as possible in that new facility. And Picnic says that what it means that in the new center, robots would deliver boxes with the right groceries to the human pickers who would only need to basically take them from one box and then put them into the other box that would be the uh, customer's one. So that would supposedly make the work of uh, humans uh, easier and automate uh, uh, whatever can be automated. But it is actually an interesting topic and something that I wanted to talk more about. That's the pickers. And that is uh, seemingly the only topic uh, where Picnic has become a sort of a controversial company in the Netherlands. So the Dutch Federation of Trade Unions, uh, FNV, has accused Picnic that it does not pay its pickers and drivers enough. Uh, this is based on a collective labor agreement uh, that outlines, among other things, uh, the minimum salary for supermarket employees in the Netherlands. And according to FNV, uh, people working for Picnic are paid about uh, 2 to 3 euros an hour less than they should be. And another interesting detail here, by the way, is that uh, although Picnic says that uh, 4,000 people are working there, it may be that technically most of these people are not employed by the startup. According to the website called youngandunited.nl, and I'm going to talk more about it a bit later, uh, all non-managerial positions at Picnic are actually filled via a temporary employment agency. And I mean, it's not something unheard of. A lot of uh, companies do it this way, uh, starting from Amazon and ending uh, with uh, companies like Ryanair or whatever. So this is also happening uh, in case of Picnic, apparently. And uh, here is a bit more on the website that I mentioned. So it's called youngandunited.nl. You can check it out. It is... uh, Pretty neat and pretty sleek. It's, uh, it looks really nice. It is available in Dutch and English. At least most of the articles there are also translated. And the website is focused on the rights of the so-called uh, flex employees, flex workers, they call them usually uh, in the Netherlands. And Wikipedia dis- defines that uh, flex workers uh, are anyone uh, working without a permanent contract. That would be including freelancers. But in this case, Young and United is rather for people on a temporary or 
zero-hour contracts uh, doing uh, those sort of low-paid jobs like uh, driving vans and uh, picking groceries and stuff like that. So what I didn't get about this website, however, is who is actually behind it and who is paying for it. I'm not sure why it's like that, but there is no word about uh, people uh, uh, who uh, made uh, this one happen. And although the movement itself is pretty broad, most of the news stories on the website are actually about Picnic and uh, how it treats its workforce and uh, uh, how much uh, the people are there are underpaid. Anyway, Picnic's lines of defense, let's take it on to the other side. In this case, uh, the line has been that Picnic is not an actual traditional supermarket, and that means that it does not have to comply with the collective labor agreement. Instead, Picnic actually wants to create a new agreement for the e-commerce sector, uh, but that hasn't happened yet, and I'm not sure it's going to happen anytime soon. So FNV, that uh, trade union federation I mentioned before, has asked the court to actually rule whether Picnic uh, is bound by this uh, supermarket labor Labor agreement, and the decision has been announced a couple of hours before we started this recording. Actually, I was just refreshing uh, the websites uh, frantically uh, to see if it uh, if it comes uh, on time uh, for uh, for this one. So, long story short. Picnic has won uh, this one, and the court uh, ruled that the only branch of the company that has to comply with the supermarket labor agreement is the one that is doing the sales operations. But that's totally not where most of the low-paid flex workers uh, are. Uh, the, the flex workers are mostly in the distribution and uh, uh, warehouse and stuff like that, so it's not the, the, the sales operations. Basically, the court's decision means that Picnic can keep operating the way it does right now. So it's been generally a good week for Picnic, I suppose, with the court verdict and an extra 250 million euros in the bank. And let's see what happens uh, when the new robotic distribution center is built. And maybe they will even extend their coverage to the north of the Netherlands where I live, because right now I can't even uh, try and check out uh, this service myself. But would you would you check out this service if it was available? Would this be something you would try? To check it out? Yes, I certainly would. Especially if I, uh, as I'm planning to move a bit out of town uh, soon and uh, it's going to be a bit uh, uh, farther from the supermarket, I would certainly try it. But the, these these labor conditions don't concern you? Like, that's not concerning as a consumer? Uh, I certainly agree with the point of the court in this case, because supermarket working in a supermarket is one thing, and uh, uh, picking groceries in a warehouse, especially if it's an automated one like the one the like what Picnic is promising, is something else. So I do believe that uh, uh, personally that Picnic is uh, complying with everything it should comply with, and in that case, I mean, why not? So there, I, I think there's kind of two things here is that one, complying with the law is one thing, but there's another point of like, is this actually ethical, which I think is what the labor organization FNV was trying to raise. And I, I certainly agree with some of the concerns that, they, that they've advanced here. And the Netherlands is quite interesting as it has been historically a long, a long um, standing advocate for these types of work. Uh, um, stronger work in labor unions. And the University of Amsterdam has a great research center about flex work, and it's been one of the pioneers here. Um, and they've actually done some writing about this. It does sound kind of complicated, and especially it's an unprofitable 
company now, even with this huge injection of money, what is it going to take to become profitable in the future? Uh, it's, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I guess it actually could become profitable if it stopped to invest in, in uh, further growth, but it's it's really hard to hard to say, of course. And it's not public, so we have uh, we have no idea uh, what uh, what's actually going on inside. Oh, and by the way, I actually I totally forgot to mention it in my notes and uh, hence in the segment itself. But uh, the funding uh, that uh, Picnic raised is not actually coming from like normal VCs, like uh, someone who you would expect, uh, but uh, it's uh, mostly from uh, the wealthy Dutch families. And uh, it's uh, it's both uh, first round and second round. So it's basically taken directly uh, uh, from uh, kind of family offices, if you will. It, it's a really interesting thing. I haven't seen a lot of it. This is a really good point, especially because a lot of uh, there's been a lot of critiques in Europe about why aren't family offices investing more in the technology industry. So this, I think, will be very interesting to follow and see see how this turns out for them because it's something that we're continually hearing that there is so much of this funding that's available in family offices, but it never comes out into the startups and technology industry. But it also appears to me that it would almost always be this sort of local investment. I don't think a family office would uh, really want to invest uh, across border directly uh, these uh, amounts of money. You know, I I'm not sure. I think they probably are all quite different. But there's an, there's another interesting aspect of that is that kind of if you're investing from a family office rather than from a VC with what you would expect would be institutional knowledge in the sector, as well as the network connections across the technology industry in different markets, it suggests that scaling outside might be a bit more complicated or harder uh, for for those companies because it doesn't come with the same sort of smart capital that VC funding might have. One thing here is also that one of the families that's invested in Picnic is actually operating a supermarket chain. Not a very big one, but, uh, I mean, decently sized one in the Netherlands. So, yeah, it's a, it's a big story. And uh, let's see how, uh, how, how it develops, because I do think that F&V will not just uh, stop and it will just uh, keep uh, uh, hounding uh, Picnic one way or the other. So we'll keep you, we'll keep you posted. So Natalie, it's December now, but you want to talk about October. How is that? How does that work? Yeah, because last week I heard a really interesting news item and it was announced that the European Investment Fund, along with CNP Assurances, BPI France, Zencap and some other unnamed investors would be committing 100 million euros in a new funding round towards October, which is not just a month, but it is a lending marketplace for European small and medium enterprises. It surprised me because the company and not the month, uh, it wasn't on my radar before. And we'll talk a little bit about why that was. But this is the second time that the EIF has invested in October. And why I wanted to talk about it is that because they're offering an alternative lending platform that offers direct loans to companies. So it unlocks a different source of capital for European startups beyond traditional methods such as private investment or crowdfunding. So I thought it'd be interesting to explore this a little bit more and see what options they actually have for startups and SMEs in Europe. So describing their offering, the October's founder, Oliver Goy, says, quote, 
we offer two advantages for institutional investors who are looking to support the SME ecosystem in Europe. We are a pan-European platform operating in France, Spain, Italy, the Netherlands, and soon Germany. And we allow them to support small and medium-sized companies at scale thanks to our technology, end quote. So I'm not really clear what their technology looks like or how it operates. It still is not very publicly disclosed, but the average loan offer to small and medium enterprises on the platform is about 490,000 euros, which is pretty sizable when it comes to a peer-to-peer lending platform. And they represent over 20,000 retail lenders. So this new investment by the EIF and others that I announced at the top of this segment means that the fund, this funding, this 100 million euros, we put forward towards new loans for companies. And the size of those loans will range between about 30,000 euros to 5 million euros. So quite a range there and a number of different offerings for, for companies. So what's unique about this is the loans are not industry, industry specific. They're very clear about that. Loans are really for companies in any industry at all. And they're designed to support companies as an alternative to the traditional bank loan. And loan financing is one area of financial support for startups that we don't hear about that often, but that's because it's often difficult for startups to convince traditional lenders that they're worth the risk. And often the terms are quite onerous for innovation-driven enterprises to fulfill. That's why startups don't turn to bank loans that frequently. And there aren't that many pan-European alternative finance providers that offer loans with terms that work for startups. So that's why you see startups going towards crowdfunding, equity raising, or private venture investment. So for more traditional enterprises, though, loan financing from banks makes a lot of sense because it allows the team to retain control over their equity. So more offerings that cater for startups especially that allow startup founders to retain their equity are a particularly good thing, I think, for the ecosystem. But October is not alone in the peer-to-peer lending market. One of the pioneers of this type of lending to SMEs, which is called Zopa, it comes from the UK. And we've learned this week that this company has raised £130 million investment, which will let the firm pivot onto bank into the banking sector. Since Zopa's founding in 2005, the firm has loaned out over four billion pounds of loans just within the United Kingdom. But this dwarfs in comparison to one of their biggest competitors, which is Funding Circle. They launched in the UK in 2010. They went public last year. The public offering didn't go particularly well, but they're still a huge player. And their marketplace of over 70,000 lenders has invested over 5.8 billion pounds into 54,000 UK businesses. They've also expanded overseas to the United States and lended over $2 billion to borrowers uh, in the US. But from what we know about October, again, the lending platform, not the month. Since its founding in 2015, the company has loaned out over 360 million euros to over 700 small and medium enterprises of different sizes. So compared to those British alternatives that I just mentioned, the loan sizes that are given out by October are much larger. And part of the reason why I hadn't recognized October before was because the company has gone through a rebrand and was known as something else previously. So let's take ourselves back 
um, a year. And as you might have guessed, in October of last year, the company announced that the company that was formerly known as Lendix rebranded as October. And they gave the following rationale for, for the rebrand, and I'll quote, a simple name, easy to remember, which goes beyond references to loans to better highlight our resolutely European ambition. A new brand that will support our evangelization efforts towards European SMEs. End quote. So it's a simple name, but it happens to be ungoogleable. And that wasn't all. It came with a new logo of a bird in flight, which, quote, represents what we want to do best, unlocking all the key moments in the growth of European companies, end quote. So there are a lot of metaphors here that are supposed to represent Europe and European companies and European SMEs that I'm not really getting from the brand that they've kind of developed here. And maybe that's in the eye of the beholder. And we've talked previously on this program before about branding in European tech. Andre, most recently, you've talked about the rebrand from Taxify to Bolt in our interview special uh, a week ago. And we've covered my taxes rebrand to the really awful, in my opinion, free now. We've also shared on this program some of the challenges you see often with French startups that are trying to operate globally in English, but with a French name. And this rebrand I find particularly challenging, especially because it looks to be a really attractive alternative financing for European startups, but the branding makes it hard to search for more information about it or to find examples of startups that have used October that are talking about their experience. So that makes it more difficult when startups are looking for financing, they want to survey the options and they, it's harder to determine if October is the right choice for them because finding information about how the service works and its outcomes is particularly difficult. And I know this from trying to research for this segment. And in tech, it's often the stories about venture capital financing that tend to get the most attention with the big rounds and splashy headlines. But it's important to remember that there are so many alternatives to this. And that's why I think October story is attractive, even though it does, it's parts of it are challenging. And that's why I think it's really important to highlight this example, because today there are really more options than ever before to fund your company. Now we just know that we have 100 million euros ready to deploy across four different countries, which might be a really good solution. And so when you look at investment on a wide scale, VC is only a small part of what's fueling the startup ecosystem. So maybe a peer-to-peer -peer loan, maybe one from October will be the right option for you. But if anyone has um, any good use cases or examples that they've used this and it's been particularly good or bad, I would love to learn more uh, because it was pretty difficult to, to kind of figure out how, how this worked and operated. This is this is an interesting one. So in case you are looking for SME funding, I will also say that the website address is october.eu. So just to save you some Googling around. 
But yeah, I just keep thinking about the uh, similarity of this rebranding to many pieces of contemporary art that you can see in the museums. Basically, some of these works only make sense if you actually read uh, the context, if you read the description that's that's on the wall uh, beside uh, this uh, contemporary artwork. And I think the October and the logo, that's one of those things as well. Like, you will not uh, guess it if you don't... uh, Uh, dig deeper and uh, check out what they actually meant uh, when they were doing this. And I'm not quite sure if this is the right approach for for, for an actual business. But, I mean, who am I to to judge here? Yeah, and the EIF thinks differently, Andre. So maybe uh, there's something there that um, is more yet to be seen. So, um, But if anyone has any experience with October, we'd love to hear your comments and hear if it's a viable solution for other startups. Indeed. Maybe we're just entering a new trend and we'll see more of that soon. Now it is time for our interview part of the podcast and we're going to hear a conversation with Rafael Meyer, uh, the CEO and founder at Lancet. And this interview is part of a series of three conversations with French startups that we recorded at Slush 2019 recently. This series is kindly sponsored by La French Tech and if you missed it, that's the brand that represents the French startup ecosystem and all those in it from bioscience to online marketplaces wherever in the world they come from. So let's check out Lancet and we will be back in a bit with recommendations. So, okay, let's start from uh, what's your name? What, what you're doing? I'm Raphael Meyer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Lancet. It's a young company based in Grenoble, France, and uh, which is active in the energy storage sector. Right. So what is Lancet? Uh, how is it different from everything else in its field? Well, what we are developing is uh, a bit specific approach for energy storage, which is introducing directly into the final use uh, an energy storage capacity. We postulate that that's going to be the future of the building for both uh, refurbishment, uh, renovation and new building as well. The idea is the storage goes perfectly well with uh, renewable sources. So the question is, um, what can be uh, what can be found to reduce the initial investment potentially to zero uh, to the end user? And that's where we develop this uh, bit specific approach uh, of introducing directly into an electric radiator, which is uh, a heating system. By far, is the main use of energy inside the building and put directly inside the storage within. It allows to tremendously reduce the cost of the kilowatt hour, so the storage, uh, the storage capacity. And uh, we make one stone, two birds in a way, because we will replace old existing heating system by a very uh, efficient one uh, with uh, machine learning algorithms to make a smart piloting, etc., etc. So it's an electric radiator that has a battery in it. Indeed. To make it simple, that's it. Interesting. And uh, are there any other radiators on the market that do the same thing? Not really. Uh, With this uh, energy storage with uh, battery, which is storing electricity, uh, it's really an exclusive approach. And we have about 20 patents that protect actually this area. You can find, of course, uh, smart electric radiators. Uh, You can have uh, uh, also heat accumulation radiators, but that's not electricity. That's just heat. So it's far less flexible. You cannot use it during the summer season. 
when you will produce uh, obviously the most of uh, solar electricity. So um, as we know, it's an exclusive approach, but of course you can buy an electric radiator and a classical energy storage like a power wall of Tesla or Zon. And the thing is, the investment will be maybe twice bigger. Right. And I also saw on the website that uh, you can connect to uh, solar uh, solar panels. Exactly. That's the kind of bundle that we prefer. Um, the idea is that almost every building in Europe can accept uh, at least a bit of solar panel. Uh, it's cost almost nothing right now. It's, the investment is really low for the solar panel. Of course, the question is to get storage capacity to keep this electricity on right. site right. And, uh, and use it later on. So that's Uh, in 2020, if you will, in eight cases over 10, we are indeed in combination with uh, with PV, uh, and and I would say it's a good sign for the for the energy transition in the building. Right. So, how much does this cost a radiator? It starts uh, around 600 euros, and uh, our let's say best-in-class version is uh, a bit less than 1,000 euro. Of course, this cost is is going to is going to decrease mm -hmm. as the volume will uh, will come. Uh, but still, it's uh, it's kind of a performance to have for that cost, very efficient heating system, an energy storage solution with a micro inverter, and a very performing energy management system, which is equivalent, let's say, to the best uh, connected thermostat. Okay, this is interesting. So when did you start all this and uh, what? Uh, how far are you down the line right now? Well, we started in June 2016. We finished the fundraising uh, Series A uh, this summer. It was about 8 million euros uh, with uh, equity and non-dilutive uh, and different uh, kind of partners in this fundraising. But actually, we are already preparing uh, the next one. That's actually the reason why we're here. Right. Um, What we want to do is being able of proposing for free, at least without any initial investment, uh, the complete bundle, which is the electric radiator, the storage and the PV uh, with a zero capex offer. And then it, we, it will be purely as a service. Okay. That's, that's the next, uh, that's the next destination on um, different countries uh, in Europe that can, uh, that can be very efficient. That, that works, uh, efficiently. Uh, the question is, of course, to find the right partners, uh, on both, uh, investment side and, of course, the distributors, the installers, the partners to, to make it, uh, to make it real. Right. And what are your target markets? Well, right now we're active only in France, but mm -hmm. um, our next markets in Europe will be uh, United Kingdom, Finland, actually. We have a proof of concept uh, plan for 2020 with the time of use tarification. Germany will come a bit later on. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, next year, we also start uh, a licensing collaboration with the leading manufacturer in Canada mm -hmm. uh, to be active uh, within two years in Canada and in the US, which is, of course, a, a huge, a huge market. Right. And our ambitions, let's say, by 2025 is actually to be present worldwide. We are working on an air conditioning system. Mm -hmm. But with the same approach, which is to embed uh, the battery storage that can be used for to develop new features like self-consumption. Right. And uh, so this battery that you have in your radiator, uh, for how long can you heat the space using the battery? Like how long does the charge last? It's a very good question. Actually, it depends on the thermal insulation of your building. But if you take a middle insulation level, that'd be a couple of hours. So it's not sufficient to cover the whole day. But the thing is, 
it's sufficient to cover the peak period. And mm-hmm. actually, that's the main issue uh, of electricity uh, in, in Europe and actually on every grid is that's something very volatile and you can have a peak uh, problems, uh, for instance, at uh, eight o'clock during the winter when all the heating systems are turning on. Of course, that, uh, that generates a huge amount of, uh, of demand. Of course. And that's where the battery uh, plays also a role in, in bringing flexibility to, to the grid. And then, of course, you can multiply the cycles uh, of uh, charging, discharging of the battery. That's where we are talking about time of use tariff mm-hmm. with uh, a price of electricity that can fluctuate every hour. And in that case, the battery will be a kind of trading solution or arbitrage solution, if you will, uh, to reduce the, the cost of electricity. So our objective is not to be off grid. It's not our philosophy. And mm-hmm. in Europe, mm-hmm. I don't think it's that useful because we have a very powerful grid. The thing is to reinforce this grid and potentially to exploit any uh, local resources for renewables. And again, a solar panel, it, it, I mean, it should be compulsory everywhere, even, even in Finland. So in a way, if I have these radiators at home and I, for example, just leave for a week, I don't really need heating, then theoretically, this radiator can make me some money. Correct. The thing is, uh, <laughs> absolutely, it's another very good question, and and it's subject that that will that will um, that will appear in the coming years. I'm I'm sure of this. That's what we call the peer-to-peer of energy approach, or uh, the shared self-consumption, if you will, extended self-consumption. The idea would be indeed to allow you to sell the electricity to the neighborhood uh, who needs this electricity mm-hmm. at, at that time when you're not at home. And why not uh, buying electricity from your neighborhood when you need it, but without uh, passing through the traditional uh, regulations and uh, and players. And the idea is to go really to this very deep level of decentralization of energy. Of course, there are huge questions about uh, uh, how you monetize this. And that's where we can talk about blockchain, but that could be other approaches, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the main question is probably about the regulation and one understands that potentially it can weaken the the local grid so we have to maintain the security of supply and to maintain the the, the investment into the grid so that's where uh, we have still a bit to to experiment but definitely into the future uh, we we will talk more and more about virtual power plant mm-hmm. uh, which is playing on the demand uh, uh, and not only on the production the storage will play a huge role we will have domestic storage stationary storage like ours but probably uh, the battery of the cars can play can play a role and uh, let's say it's um we have no choice we have no choice we have to get rid of fossil fuels uh, for right. for electricity right. it's a pivot that go that goes very very fast electrification process is still running very fast uh, you can uh, take a look at the sky scenario from shell uh, the leading oil and gas company and they postulate the electricity will triple by 2017 in the final use and that comes from the oil and gas company like shell right. So it's really a change of paradigm. But the good thing is that we are, I think, going very close from the end user. Electricity traditionally is something a bit mysterious that you cannot hold in your hand. Uh, you don't really know what's an electron, etc., etc. With this self-consumption approach on a very local scale, uh, it's a community approach somehow. Uh, so it's very powerful in terms of uh, fast development. And I hope that if we make this pedagogy of uh, what's what's the electron, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, w- well, we will make people accept this uh, this transition and why not maybe sometime even accept a reduction of the comfort if that can be uh, the consequence of a, of a lower uh, co2 emissions right 
So, and uh, by now, how many radiators do you have installed? Yeah, we'll go back on Earth. <laughs> we have thousand units running, so it's right. still it's still not that much, of course. But it's uh, we we entered the the production already. Next year, it's for the mass production. Mm -hmm. uh, we have already a book order of about five thousand units, so it's a uh, uh, it's a lot for us. So we have to. It's a challenge actually with our partners. We we don't produce ourselves, but we have to uh, we have to let's say motivate our subcontractors. We have to maintain the quality to reduce the cost uh, and to deliver also potentially to to the to in b2c uh, mm -hmm. right now we are only in, in b2b so it's okay. also a network of distribution etc to to create but let's say it's a bit traditional approaches and um, we also have a, a pretty nice project that uh, I'm, I'm pretty proud of, uh, which is reusing uh, electric bike batteries uh, in Second Life. Um, right. We can do it because the battery that we use right now, which is a new battery, uh, is actually pretty similar uh, to uh, big uh, bike batteries. And we signed an agreement with uh, La Poste, so the French mm -hmm. uh, post in, uh, uh, in Paris area. We will recover 10,000 uh, bikes, uh, batteries, and we postulate that about uh, half of them uh, will be still usable for a couple of years uh, of second life into the radiator. And as we know, it's a world premiere to make this reusing without remanufacturing steps, meaning with very, very cost-efficient uh, okay. approach. So do you need to still repackage them, basically? No, it's no. only uh, we will make um, in-life uh, monitoring, so every cycles during uh, the first life into the bike. So that's already a way to pre-select, if you will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then the ones that fulfill the tests will uh, go through uh, an additional test. So in this case, uh, on, on our 10th uh, bench. And then uh, they go uh, without remanufacturing directly into uh, into the radiator. It's and it will be about four to five years more uh, compared to the only two years that uh, that uh, that the battery is supposed to have uh, in a classical bike uh, approach. So we know that using lithium-ion battery. Uh, it can create some question. We, we are not hiding this fact. It's it's a, it's a reality. So we have to be a bit responsible about this raw material uh, impact, etc. Until we get to uh, let's say more neutral uh, battery electrochemistry. For now, lithium ion is really by far the, the best technology. So we 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 are we chosen to 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 don't to don't go against the the stream. But um, at least with this approach, we can kind of. Uh, Double or even triple the the total lifetime of the of the battery, and of course, uh, it has a huge impact on the initial cost, because again, uh, with this approach, the the, the 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 initial investment into the battery is tremendously reduced. Interesting. So, and uh, how big is your team at the moment? We're twenty two people, uh, mainly dealing with uh, R and D, development, industrialization, and uh, of course, machine learning algorithms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, we are hiring like one one people per per month right now. So the the the, the team is growing pretty pretty fast. Uh, if uh, some are interested into this adventure, of course, please contact me. And um, clearly, we hope that this message uh, that indeed there. There are many things to, to do at a very local scale, uh, potentially on every building, uh, can create a bit of hope uh, within, this, uh, within this energy transition that we, are, that, we, that we will have to face anyway. Right. And what's the competition like for you? Right now, it's um, paradoxically, it's about uh, producing a larger amount of, uh, of, uh, of uh, production batches, if you will. So it's really the scale-up phase. 
Mm-hmm. And um, it's not selling, which is difficult. Uh, paradoxically, it's producing. And um, we've chosen to produce in Europe, more precisely in, uh, in France. We have almost nothing coming from, from China, actually. And uh, it's also a bit of a challenge sometimes. But again, uh, we think the, the product deserves it. We have a fantastic team. And uh, with the last fundraising, we got also two nice partners to, to work with, which, uh, which are NG uh, in mm-hmm. France and Stelpro. It's a world-leading uh, manufacturer in, in Canada. And they bring actually a lot of, uh, of help. We are not a production specialist right now, and our strategy actually for the for the next uh, uh, years of uh, of production will be any way to generalize this uh, licensing procedure. So the idea is just to bring, if you will, a technology which is a connected battery with an en- energy management system and the possibility to reuse second life bike batteries, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and potentially around this kind of motor, uh, which is a Lancer lo- one, uh, we can uh, implement in various kind of products. There will be uh, radiators, of course, but air conditioning system into the future, maybe some other uses, maybe uh, around the EV car. Why not? We, it's a, it's a field right. of application. But uh, we will try to combine, let's say, the uh, the agility of uh, of a young startup with the large production asset and the quality uh, quality control that uh, a larger manufacturer can 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 bring. So we hope right. it's a bit the the best of the two worlds. I see. Okay. Thank you so much. This sounds Thank great. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for taking the time and good luck. Thank you very much. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of TechU, episode number 145. Uh, thanks for listening to our interview, and it is time now for the recommendation part. And mine for today is actually not even a story or a podcast or a book, but it's an organization. And this organization has unfortunately just shut down. I'm talking about the Apostrophe Protection Society, and uh, this uh, society has been active since 2001, but now its founder, John Richards, a retired journalist, is 96 years old, and he has just decided to close the society down. Here is a direct quote on the reasons. There are two reasons for this. One is that at 96, I am cutting back on my commitments. And the second is that fewer organizations and individuals are now caring about the correct use of the apostrophe in the English language. We and our many supporters worldwide have done our best, but the ignorance and laziness present in modern times have won. The quote ends. To tell the truth, I actually didn't even know that this society existed. I've never heard of it before, but if I did, I would definitely have joined. This is something that uh, uh, that is certainly something that uh, I kind of care about. So in order to honor this magnificent organization, if you write in English, do visit the website linked in the show notes and check that you still remember the correct ways to use the apostrophe. <laughs> Natalie, what do you think? Oh, I think that's very nice, Andre, but also very sad that it's no longer existing. And I think maybe it might be a nice thing. You should carry on their great work and maybe you should take the helm of the apostrophe protection society. Yeah, I mean, the website of the society stays up. 
it's apostrophe.org.uk and you can always check uh, the rules of uh, using the apostrophe and I'm pretty sure that at some point I'm not sure if it's related at all but I'm pretty sure that I have seen a Twitter bot that kind of uh, uh, goes through all the tweets and uh, when it sees uh, instances of incorrect usage of the apostrophe it would just uh, uh, send you an automated uh, reply saying okay just check this out I think you uh, you use the apostrophe wrong here <laughs> have you ever uh, gotten any replies from it no i haven't got any replies from it but i get a lot of very bad replies and inappropriate direct messages in twitter and this is something that i think is becoming more and more frequent so hopefully next year 2020 twitter really works on making sure the right kinds of bots and users are on the platform because it's really becoming quite a, quite a difficult scenario. Okay, let's just only leave the apostrophe ones and everything else can go. It's all right. Now, Natalie. Yeah, so my recommendation this week is a bit more traditional than yours, Andre, but it is a story from Wired UK and it's a quasi-long read titled the bonkers, bristly story of how Big Toothbrush took over the world. Uh, if that title doesn't hook you, uh, it is a very well-researched and creative article about something that all of us, well, I hope all of us are using every day. And it goes into this wacky story of how a simple tool that has had so much technology thrown at it and how some iterations of the toothbrush have become so entirely over-engineered. And part of the reason why I got hooked on this story is because a startup called Beam Dental, one of the connected toothbrush companies, they've just pivoted from toothbrushes to health insurance. So it <laughs> delves into this slippery slope of how connected devices and how they can bring more parties into the bathroom with you than, than you might have wanted, such as your employer, health insurer, to make sure you're brushing well enough. Uh, but beyond that dystopian future, it in, encourages you, you to imagine. It's a great story about product and about brand building. So kind of taking something that is very simple and that's something that everyone thinks they already know and turning it into something that's special and delightful. Uh, because what you have in the toothbrush wars is a really interesting competition going on. So it's a great business story. And the creativity that's necessary to stand out in this very fierce competition. So if you're thinking of buying an electric toothbrush this holiday season or possibly an entirely sustainable bamboo toothbrush, which I've seen um, marketed quite quite a lot in this part of the country, um, do check that piece out. Okay, I do have an electric toothbrush, but not a connected one. And I highly doubt that I would actually want one because I don't trust uh, uh, the IoT appliances enough. Uh, how about yourself? Do you have a connected toothbrush, Natalie? No, I don't have a connected toothbrush, but I think everyone that has a toothbrush is quite partial to to their desired option. Uh, and then that that's why I think this is such an interesting story about how Different brands are trying to convince consumers to abandon their most preferred option, something that is quite an intimate device in a lot of ways, if you think about it. But it, it is quite interesting how, how they're going to get more people into put their brushing in the cloud. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I do see the appeal of, I don't know, checking out uh, how long I spent uh, brushing my teeth and uh, which parts of my mouth I brushed uh, mostly, <laughs> most of the time and stuff like that. But uh, I don't know. I mean, the, it's mostly security and price for me because it is expensive as hell and uh, I don't want somebody else to see how long I brush my teeth. Well, the technology behind some of these new offerings is quite incredible. Uh, it's things that you wouldn't really believe are happening, are happening in the world of toothbrushes. So um, I think it's a fun story and encourage everyone to have a look at that. The world of toothbrushes. That sounds fascinating. It's quite outside the box. I will check it out for sure. <laughs> Okay, on this uh, great note, uh, this is time for us to wrap it up. That's it for today's podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Andri. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye.